0: Welcome to Serving the Psychic Weight. I'm your host, Christy Walsh. I'm excited to say hello to the glow. In this show, we hope to bring you new ideas to your spiritual path by letting you hear how other folks have walked their path or how they awakened. The planet, the solar system, and every being in it is waking up in some way. Things are changing from a third or fourth dimensional world to something different, and we're expanding our world from duality to a world where we are back to all one. And we're interested in new ways to create within ourselves, with others, and with our world. We've noticed we can connect with spirit faster, move energy around quicker, and time is speeding up. The way we use energy is changing, carrying new vibrations, and the way we interpret the world around us is expanding, and we're asking different questions of ourselves and our world. The way we define love is getting bigger, and there's always bigger, brighter ways to surf. So grab your boards. We'll be looking at ways to redefine or define magnetism, power, and peace. So let's ride the waves of our new ascension, psychic, or spiritual spaces together and share our stories. My special guest star surfer today is Chris Brennan. He's a professional astrologer from Denver, Colorado. In his college studies, he's focused on cross-cultural comparisons between the astrological traditions, and he specializes in history, philosophy, and the practice of ancient astrology, as well as the Greco-Roman tradition of astrology known as Hellenistic astrology, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the broadcast. He's the former president of the Association of Young Astrologers, as well as the former research director of the National Council of Geocosmic Research, which sounds really cool. He's currently the associate editor of the Mountain Astrologer magazine, and he currently writes a popular blog called the Horoscopic Astrology Blog since 2007. And since 2012, Chris has been recording the Astrology Podcast, and you can also find that on iTunes and on Chris Brennan's site, chrisbrennanastrologer.com. So welcome, Chris.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. We get to talk. We get to talk about the history of astrology, and I think, you know, folks around the globe have reached out to you for astrology readings, but I think what you sort of introduced them to if they hadn't heard any of it before is sort of the history and how that interacts with us in everyday life. So I'd love to hear kind of your take on the history of astrology and, of course, and in three seconds no just kidding. Sure.
1: <laughs> that many that much time I'm not sure that I'll need that much but maybe two seconds
0: yeah exactly okay
1: so yeah I mean uh, the history of astrology I didn't know that that was something I don't think most astrologers and most people realize that that's something that's relevant but sometimes if you if you get into astrology and you look into its history um, you kind of learn about it more deeply and it, there's kind of an interesting story about where Western astrology comes from and, and how it was developed um, so that's something that I've sort of come to specialize in and, and become known for is, is uh, that study or that uh, specific area of focus.
0: So how how did it sort of grab you that this was something that you're going to sort of keep talking about in your career. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I initially wasn't that interested, um, but uh, right out of high school, I went to uh, Kepler College in Washington, which was a new school at the time that was uh, s- developed a program to offer degrees uh, that incorporated astrological studies. And the very first year of their program was almost entirely uh, history, directed towards the history of Western astrology from uh, ancient times, from uh, taking it from the Babylonians and the and the Egyptians, taking it all the way through the Greeks and the Romans, the medieval period, and up to the modern age, and that was kind of all fine and good in terms of just studying it uh, for historic historical sake. So I could be fluent in you know where astrology comes from and how it developed and everything else. But then, in the second year, we were supposed to start studying. Um, psychological astrology, because originally their program, as it was presented, was that in the second year you would branch off then into your specialization. And my goal at that point was to study psychological astrology. Uh, But at that point, all they had by the time I got there was this program on ancient astrology, on what they called Hellenistic astrology. And we all kind of protested at the time because we didn't really, you know, it was okay to think about it for historical purposes, but we didn't actually want to study it Uh, as if those techniques were still relevant or practical today because we had the assumption that they were not. Uh, But then after much protest they eventually forced us to just take the course and within a week of starting it I realized that we had sort of been forced to or had stumbled upon something very valuable and that there was something useful to be had in studying ancient astrology and the techniques of ancient
0: astrologers. So what's different about the ancient astrologers? Would you say the first sort of batch of astrologers were Babylonian or something farther back?
1: Yeah, it started out in um, Mesopotamia with the ancient Babylonians. And they first came up with the original premise of astrology, which is that they started noticing this correlation between celestial movements and earthly events, that oftentimes when some significant event would happen on Earth, there would be a significant uh, movement or appearance in the sky at the same time. And they started like collecting this together by writing these little uh, clay tablets in cuneiform uh, where they would just record these omens, where they would say, um, if an eclipse takes place in this part of the sky, then the king will die. Or if such and such happens, if there's a halo around the moon when during this part of the year, then there will be a famine or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually they just kept collecting hundreds and hundreds of these omens and building it up and eventually they started merging them, and it started becoming more complex. Astrology went from these simple if X, then Y statements, um, and started getting more complicated. And then eventually they uh, invented or developed, they discovered the concept of natal astrology, that it's not just looking at um, events taking place in the sky, and then major events that affect the entire populace on Earth correlating with that, but that you can also look at where the planets and where the stars are at the moment of a person's birth, and that will have something significant to say about that person's life, both in the character of their life as well as the course of it, or the, their future, essentially. So yeah, that was the starting point. And then at some point around the first century BC, about the beginning of the Roman Empire, Um, This new type of astrology sort of comes out of nowhere, called Hellenistic astrology. And this is essentially the form of astrology that most Western astrologers are familiar with nowadays, that uses um, birth charts that have planets, and signs of the zodiac, and aspects, and houses, and lots of complex timing techniques. Um, This entire system actually comes out of nowhere in the first century BC, as a really complicated and complex construct. For determining information about the future and nobody sort of fully knows where it comes from there's a huge debate about this but what's useful about it to us today um, aside from the debates is just the fact that it's actually a genuine predictive form of astrology and it's actually uh, I would argue a bit more effective than modern astrology which tends to be more focused on psychology and character analysis um, ancient Hellenistic astrology tends to be much more effective in actually predicting events about a person's life or being able to tell you about a person's career and life direction or when they will hit a peak in their career or become eminent or when they'll have a job transition or what have you. So that, that's one of the main differences.
0: So, what about like the path of fortune and the path of spirit? And I, I know you look at that in your readings. Yeah. So, maybe you could define that a little bit more. It's not something that A person always uh, takes a look at when they're looking at their natal chart
1: sure yeah I mean there's a bunch of little techniques like that that some of them kind of survived a little bit into modern astrology like the part of fortune uh, or the lot of fortune which uh, some modern astrologers will put in charts but nobody really knows what to do with it Um, but what happened over the past 10 to 20 years is that some astrologers started going back to the earliest texts of the Western tradition, which were largely written in Greek, and we started doing translations of these texts, and we found out that there were these complex timing techniques that things like the Lot of Fortune and the Lot of Spirit acted as the starting point for. Um, So in my work, um, I use a timing technique that uh, I found in a translation of a 2nd century text by an author named Vadius Valens, where um, you can use a lot of spirit in order to basically outline or, or divide a person's entire life up into chapters and subsections, as if the person's life was a book, and you wanted to identify where the chapter breaks were, as well as where the paragraphs within each chapter were. Um, but more than that, or more interestingly, it also allows you to identify what some of the most important or, or pivotal or active chapters are within the book or the narrative of the natives of the person's life um, so that's part of what I used a lot of spirit for and then we used a lot of fortune in order to identify what will be the the peak periods or the most active and pivotal periods within the context of a person's career or uh, love life or health or what have you and just about every Ancient astrologer used a lot of fortune, and to a lesser extent, most of them also used a lot of spirit. Valens himself, he says that he got this technique from an earlier author named Abraham, and so we know that it wasn't just Valens who came up with it or Valens that was using it, but it was being used by other people in the ancient world. And other people were drawing on this same text that was outlining what Valens, right at the start, calls uh, a very powerful timing technique so it was being used by by multiple people in the ancient world and we actually see uh, i talked to a, a colleague who specializes in ancient indian astrology and he says that a Similar variation of the technique shows up in an Indian text at one point so we think that the one of the Greek text containing this technique was actually transmitted to India at some point where they translated into Sanskrit and started using it there as well.
0: Wow I think it's amazing how this information disseminated all over the world
1: yeah in those
0: ancient times
1: yeah, that's one of the things that's kind of fascinating is we kind of assume that you know in the modern period that the way that information gets around is unique or that the level of cultural interaction and synthesis that goes on is kind of completely unique to modern times but that's not necessarily the case certainly how rapid it is and how quickly um, information is exchanged between different people all over the world uh, has increased in modern times but in the ancient world there actually was a lot of interactions especially within the roman empire between different cultures and different people with different ethnic and religious and, and spiritual backgrounds and they would often Uh, trade information with each other and trade wisdom traditions and um, occult practices and and things like that would sort of go back and forth and they would take one system of of divination and they would sometimes merge it or blend it with a system of divination from somewhere else. Um, And that was actually, that's one of the key sort of defining characteristics of Egypt all the way across the Middle East and Iraq through Persia all the way over to India so that suddenly this huge swath of the ancient world is suddenly under under the control of greek-speaking peoples and as a result of that there was this huge cultural blending and melding and one of the things that got melded was different systems of astrology yeah
0: it's just fascinating it takes a leader like alexander the great to sort of bring these cultures together and set up the system of trade in a way that made it easy to uh, exchange ideas. Yeah. It's just pretty amazing. I mean, we think we're so smart yeah. in the modern times, but I have a feeling that I think the ancients knew what they were doing and they had actually a lot of technology that maybe we just don't, we haven't found it yet. Yeah. I mean, besides what we've already found. You
1: know? I mean, in some instances, you know, they were a lot more perceptive and had a lot more insight into really important sort of grand cosmological things about the the nature of the universe, or the fundamental nature of the universe in some fundamental uh, sense than, than we realize or, or perhaps than we even do at this point just despite advances in modern science and cosmology and everything else. Um, and then at the same time we're also still discovering things constantly about how advanced or what sort of capabilities they even had from a technical standpoint. Um, such as the, the relatively recent discovery of the Antikythera mechanism, which was this um, complex mechanical device that it's usually referred to as like a, a mechanical or an analog computer because mm-hmm. um, it had the capability of basically calculating where each of the planets were um, at any given moment of time and uh, calculating things like where eclipses would take place, and it was fished out of a, a shipwreck. Uh, in the past century, and they've recovered additional pieces recently in the past decade or so. uh, But it dates back to like the year 100 or 150 B.C., which is around the same time that all of this astrology, this new system of astrology shows up suddenly in the Hellenistic period. So clearly, in some instances, they even had technological capabilities that we don't even realize or, or can't even imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I was a ruler back then, I would want one of those things sure i would want to know when the eclipse is coming and when i could use that to my advantage
1: yeah exactly and that's where it was headed it was like on a boat headed from alexandria which is probably where hellenistic astrology was invented and it was on its way to rome uh at that point so um on like a trading ship that had a bunch of other expensive stuff with it so it was probably commissioned by a very rich and powerful person who uh probably employed astrologers um to to look into certain things for him and they wanted the additional ability to calculate where the planets would be quickly and easily, which a device like that would have allowed them to do. Yeah.
0: So what about the stars themselves? Are you interested in different, like six stars and I don't know all of them off the top of my head like you would, but um like are you into more the asteroids or the planets themselves or what's sort of your latest interest?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean I tend to focus on the planets themselves, especially the the seven visible planets, because the, the planets that you can see with just your naked eye tend to be more significant than other bodies that you can't see with the naked eye. Um, I still think, obviously, the outer planets like Uranus and Neptune are, are significant and important and can be major game changers in terms of their placement in a chart. But one of the things I've been doing is trying to strip it down so that you have Um, instead of having hundreds or dozens or hundreds of different points in a chart to really focus it in on the core uh, planets and what their uh, underlying significations are in order to get sort of a deeper and richer understanding of the symbolic meaning of just simple placements like that. But yeah, definitely sometimes still other things like fixed stars, especially some of the, the, the bright fixed stars like the four royal Uh, Fixed stars like Regulus or Antares can be really important So I'll definitely take those into account if they're like closely conjunct a Visible or personal planet.
0: Yeah, so uh, is it common or not that common where a person sort of gets, you know, a star in their brain? (laughs) I mean like out here in in California um, many of the biotechs out here use use the stars as, as company names so somebody had a dream that up and I I do think that folks are kind of impulsed by kind of the planets or the stars around them. And so have you noticed that in your work where somebody's really obsessed with like Jupiter or a Venus or something like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Especially with fixed stars, if they're like closely conjunct uh, a personal point in the chart, like uh, the midheaven or the ascendant or even the moon to a lesser extent, there was a famous astrologer uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, from Germany who had the fixed star regulus I think conjunct her midheaven and so she called her uh, publishing company uh, regulus press or regulus books Um, and then I have a friend of mine who is trying to also start a company recently and she has the fixed star Antares uh, close to her midheaven and Mars placement in the 10th house and she was going to call it Antares press so sometimes it's funny I mean, in in those instances, it's more deliberate because they're actual astrologers. But oftentimes you'll see people who don't know anything about astrology naming like a company or a venture or a, a book or something like that, a product after some sort of astrological placement and not realizing that the reason why they're so fixated on that placement is that it was prominent. Uh, in the sky at the moment that they were born. So yeah, you do come across that from time to time.
0: Yeah. So folks out there should take a look at what stars and planets really sort of speak to them and then take a look at that needle chart.
1: Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that can actually be very inspiring and it can, um, you know, if you're not fully tapped into that or you don't fully, if there's not something that's sort of bugged you in that way, or you haven't been exposed to it and you may not be familiar with it, um, sometimes just being exposed to it or hearing about it, certain, there will be like a person sometimes will walk away from a consultation, regardless of what the astrologer said, they might end up focusing on like specific parts of it or specific things within it that ended up resonating with them um, in a particularly, I don't know, powerful way. And sometimes that can be a result of having certain things prominent in their chart as well and becoming fixated on Mercury or, or Saturn or Jupiter or what have you.
0: Yeah, so obsession kind of works well, I think, in astrology. If you start obsessing about it, then maybe it's something that you can take a look at.
1: Yeah, well, sometimes there's there's definitely ways to like channel that into a really positive um, yeah. fashion. And I think that's what people sometimes do with things like uh, astrologically-based talismans and amulets, is that they'll uh, wait until a specific, a particularly auspicious time for when a particular planet is very prominent in the sky and then they'll create and they'll mold like a piece of jewelry or like an amulet um, at that moment in order to sort of capture the the essence of that time when that planet is so prominent and sometimes that can be a good way to take like a specific planet or a specific placement in a chart and attempt to sort of invoke it in your life in a more constructive and positive way like if you need more uh, not responsibility, but if you're having a time, hard time being uh, grounded and doing things in sort of a regular, or reliable fashion, sometimes people will use like a Saturn talisman for that in order to become more uh, to invoke some of the more constructive significations of that, or um, if they are the opposite and they tend to have problems being optimistic or sort of seeing the bright side and going out and accomplishing things in a, in a more optimistic optimistic fashion then they might fashion a Jupiter talisman in order to bring that more prominently into their consciousness or uh, if they have problems being assertive or asserting themselves they might have a Mars talisman or what have you um, so there's definite way definitely ways to like um, invoke a, a specific planet in your life in a constructive way that and sometimes maybe appear to border on obsessing about it, but uh, usually it's much more constructive than, than just obsessing about it because you're actually doing something about it and you're bringing it into your life yeah. for a specific purpose.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what do you think about uh, going into this holiday season? Do you notice any bigger sort of trends happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's happening right now this month is we're getting the last couple of eclipses that are taking place um before the end of the year basically they're both in october one of them uh just happened i think a week ago in aries and then the next one the big one takes place in scorpio next thursday uh, october 23rd i think so those are two big things because depending on what um house that each of those eclipses falls in in a person's chart it's going to activate. Uh, some of the topics associated with that house for the next six months of that person's life so it's basically sort of like a a bookmark uh, or a bookend on one side at the very beginning saying uh, This is opening sort of an important chapter of your life with respect to this area of your life for the next six months so for example if um let's say one of those placements was in Uh, your seventh house, then it might be opening an important chapter for the next six months with respect to the topic of relationships or marriage in your life. Or if it was in the 10th house, it would be opening it with respect to career and life direction. Uh, Or if it was in the fourth house, then it would be your family and your home and your living situation and so on and so forth. Um, So that's one of the big things that's happening is just that those those eclipses are right now and we're kind of sandwiched in between them and that's going to initiate a new six-month phase um, the other thing that's really huge from my perspective is that Saturn, by the end of the year, in, in mid-December, is going to finally leave Scorpio, where it's been for a couple of years now, it's, and it's going to move into Sagittarius, um, which is a huge shift for anybody that has either Scorpio or Sagittarius placements. Um, like, for example, a lot of people who are um, in their late 20s or... Uh, mid to late 50s are having their Saturn return in Scorpio right now. And um, some of those people, depending on how the chart is sort of situated, have been having periods of like greater success in establishing themselves and establishing new structures in their life and being relatively successful within the context of that, whereas other people have been having the opposite. And some of those structures are falling apart and, and being removed and things are kind of... Uh, decaying so that they can start out a new cycle and begin over again with something fresh Um, so that's definitely a big shift Um, not just for people having their Saturn returns but basically for everybody just because as soon as Saturn moves from Scorpio into Sagittarius it's going to be shifting into a new house in just about everybody's chart if you're using whole sign houses Um, so yeah that's one of the big shifts that's gonna take place later this year that I'm looking forward to
0: and Um, Saturn will be in Sagittarius for a while, a year and a half, maybe?
1: Yeah, it's like it goes into Sagittarius in December and then it goes retrograde early in 2015 so that it ends up falling back into late Scorpio for a few months uh, towards the middle of next year. I think next summer, but then eventually goes back into Sagittarius permanently by I think next fall and then it stays there for like two years so it's actually a pretty long transit all the way from 2015 until sometime in 2017 Um, so it's uh, that shift that takes place starting this December is actually going to be one that lasts for a couple of years essentially
0: okay so we should check out our Saturn (laughs) relationships with Saturn and also what that Sagittarius sort of sign means to us
1: yeah definitely and especially in the context of just what how what whole sign house is saturn moving into uh, when it moves into sagittarius like for example if you have um leo on the uh let's say the ascendant then sagittarius is going to be the fifth sign relative to the ascendant so sagittarius will be your fifth house which can be associated with things like children um so for example some people that have Leo rising, when Saturn moves into Sagittarius, uh, topics surrounding children or pregnancy or childbirth could become more uh, prominent in their life and more significant um, within a certain context. So, yeah, just looking at what house Saturn is going to move into is going to be crucial because for many people that will broadly describe what the next two years of your life are going to be about.
0: That's great. That's good to know. Yeah. Then you could just sort of relax into it. Instead of like, surprise.
1: Yeah, and I think that's probably, and that always has been, I mean, even in the ancient world, that was the key number one rationale for what's what's the point of all this, or what's the purpose of astrology. And they said that the purpose, the primary reason at least, that they said was the purpose of astrology is to know the future so that you can anticipate events in the future as things happen in your life. Um, so, so the original rationale for astrology, even 2,000 years ago, was almost very psychological or very much about helping the person to anticipate certain things so that they're not fully caught off guard and so that they're not, uh, especially in the case of difficult events, not harmed by them as much psychologically or, or mentally or spiritually as they could be if they were just caught off guard and had no idea uh, what what was around the corner or had no idea that they had to prepare for something or or uh, to start working in order to try and uh, not avoid, but um, perhaps mitigate some of the the more difficult aspects of it.
0: So were the ancients looking at the stars and the planets as like allies or friends, or how did did they sort of think about them?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, there were different um, viewpoints. I mean, there was a lot of different philosophical schools and religious systems in the ancient world and each of them seemed to relate to astrology in different ways so I mean the the Stoics for example viewed the entire cosmos as like a living uh, being uh, so that for them the sort of creator or God was seen as like eminent in the cosmos and was the cosmos as a living being and so everything that was occurring within it was happening within the body of God and therefore everything happened for a reason or for a purpose they had a very optimistic sort of viewpoint in the sense that they thought that everything happened for a reason and therefore in that sense they really felt that whether a good event or a bad event happens to your life whatever is going to happen is supposed to happen and for that reason there's not ultimately at least on some universal level uh, any such thing as sort of a bad event because eventually Uh, things go in the direction that they're supposed to go into even if from a personal or sort of individual standpoint we can acknowledge that there's certainly events that happen that are subjectively not good and that we don't don't prefer so that, that was one viewpoint um there's other viewpoints like um ptolemy viewed astrology as working as sort of an extension of natural science that the planets emit certain qualities and like heat or moisture and that um Like, for example, the two benefic planets, Venus and Jupiter, were viewed as positive or benefic because they were very moderate in what they signified, so that they didn't tend towards extremes. Um, And people that were very influenced by those planets also tended to be very moderate and therefore not extreme in their psychological or... Uh, sort of spiritual predispositions, whereas the two difficult planets, or the two malefics, Mars and Saturn, were viewed as tending to be too extreme in their manifestations. So Mars tending to heat things up excessively, or Saturn tending to cool things down excessively. And therefore, he would say that Mars will then coincide with anger or rage, uh, if it's prominent in a person's chart at a certain point, whereas Saturn might coincide with uh, sadness or depression because of that cooling effect um, so in that context you know it, depending on how you phrase the question it's like yes mm-hmm. they did view the planets sometimes as helpers or, or things that hindered but more in sort of a naturalistic sort of context without being inherently like good or bad in and of themselves but just having side effects that inclined people in one direction or another
0: so what about like the Part about astrology being in fashion during some you know historical eras and then kind of falling out of fashion and like how does that happen
1: sure so I
0: mean I'm, I I could have I could imagine that like you know there's a big sort of church movement you know in Rome or something like that and so astrology is not so popular or something but it just seems like it's a little more something else is going on there
1: in, in terms of ancient times or in terms of modern times
0: Uh, ancient times.
1: Yeah, I mean, in ancient times, astrology kind of got wrapped up in the culture so that um, Hellenistic astrology, for example, kind of peaked around the same time that the Roman Empire peaked around the second, first and second centuries. And then after that point, the Roman Empire starts to decline due to um, political reasons because it wasn't very well managed. Like a lot of the emperors weren't very uh, good leaders and their currency started to fall apart. Um, And then they started to encounter like invasions from outside forces and so on and so forth So the Roman Empire starts to decline and and things move into the Middle Ages where it moves away from being like big huge cities with a million people in them to being more uh, Rural and people are more spread out and education is not as prominent as it once was And so as a result of that astrology, which was an educated study, you had to actually know mathematics in order to be able to calculate charts by hand with um, tables and stuff in the days before computers. Um, So it's the loss of learning and education and culture and science, actually, that leads to the downfall of astrology for the most part. Um, Back then, for example, during the Roman Empire, there was definitely some opposition from Christianity. And Christianity, even though it was very favorable towards astrology initially, during the early part of its history, for example, with um, stories in the New Testament, like the Star of Bethlehem and the three astrologers who came to, to witness the birth of uh, Jesus. Um, later, the, the Christian sort of church fathers became very antagonistic towards astrology because they thought that it sort of um, stepped on too many toes in terms of doctrines, their, their personal doctrines surrounding free will, um, because free will is such a crucial component in Christian theology, because you have to have a completely and utterly free will in order to be able to choose to be redeemed or not. And if there's anything sort of outside of that saying that a certain person might be predisposed to having a certain type of character or certain things occurring in their future, then it kind of gets a little little complicated and a little messy. And I guess that became one of the main contributing factors.
0: Got it. A little predestination kind of not not quite jiving with free will yeah
1: and that's still a debate <laughs> that astrologers have today and it's still something that even astrologers within the astrological community quite a part about you know quite aside from what outsiders think um, astrologers themselves are always still arguing about this issue and the extent um, basically the question of to what extent are things predetermined and how far does that go because uh, most astrologers sort of acknowledge that there's some basic level of of predetermination or predestination that's inherent in the concept of astrology. Basically, if you're saying that at the moment that a person was born, the alignment of the planets at that moment can tell you something about a person's character or about a person's future, then you're implicitly acknowledging some level of predetermination. But the question is just how far does that go and, and to what extent are you going to take that? And that's still very much a debate that astrologers are having today.
0: You know, we, we want the free will, right? but we also want to know the future. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we want it all. Very, we want all the pieces.
1: They're very competing sort of um, inclinations or like desires that humans have in terms of that, in terms of wanting to have complete control over everything on the one hand, but then on the other hand, sometimes wanting to know what will take place in the future. And they can sometimes be kind of difficult things to reconcile.
0: And then it brings it sort of back to nature and, and how a, a human being fits in with the rest of the nature around them, whether that be a planet or, you know, the tree across the street or something.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, and sometimes at what point, you know, a person's own personal desires. Um, or inclinations or like preferences sometimes get subsumed in the context of the broader sort of where the universe is headed and how things are developing at that point. and And whether your, your personal preferences are fully in line with where things are headed or if they're out of sync with that for some reason.
0: So if folks want to get back into sync with, you know, their lot of fortune or a lot of spirit um, and they want to look at their natal chart. um should they just go to your website? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean my website uh, in terms of consultations. Right now I'm finishing up a, a book. I've been uh, I signed a contract for my first book that's going to be on Hellenistic astrology, and I have to turn the manuscript in for, by January 1st. So I'm actually uh, on uh, taking like a sabbatical right now uh, from consultations, um, but I am compiling sort of a list of people that want to that I can notify once I start doing consultations again through my website uh, Astrologer.com. And then, of course, I also teach uh, a course on Hellenistic astrology. So usually if people want to learn about ancient astrology and learn about a more predictive form of astrology, then they usually take my course, which is uh, the course at HellenisticAstrology.com.
0: Great. And uh, your podcast, too. They can still brush up, I think, on some of your podcasts. And those are on iTunes.
1: Yeah. Is that right? We're up to, I think, like 20-something episodes. Um, I do it kind of sporadically. I think you're a lot better at... um, podcasting more regularly than I am and I'm definitely envious of you in that regard but uh, yeah we're up to 20 episodes and we've got a lot of interesting sort of in-depth shows on astrology and different topics related to it whether technical or philosophical or metaphysical or what have you and it's just called the astrology podcast or you can find it as theastrologypodcast.com
0: okay we'll check it out so thank you so much chris for the education and uh, taking a look at all sorts of different aspects of astrology with us today i think we we all learned a lot and i can't wait to have you on the show again awesome
1: thank you so much christy it's been great talking to you and this has been a really interesting conversation so thanks for having me on